In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Genesis. We're actually almost done with Genesis. Um, today we're going to look at chapter 49. Uh, and uh, and uh, next time, God willing, we'll complete the chapter uh, in Genesis 50. Does anyone want to recap what we uh, spoke about last time? We studied Genesis 46, 47, and 48. Yes. Right. So that was in uh, in 46. Jacob and uh, his uh, other brothers, they arrive in Egypt. Okay, good. That was in the main point in, in chapter 46. What was 47? The main event that happened in 47. Uh, so that was in chapter 48. So that was 48. Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph. That's where we left off. Chapter 47 was the encounter between Jacob and Pharaoh, right? And Jacob actually blessing Pharaoh. That was in chapter 47. So uh, we'll continue today, God willing, uh, with chapter 49. Chapter 49 is a unique chapter uh, in the book of Genesis uh, because here there is a listing where Jacob is, is going to bless the sons, uh, his, his sons before he dies. He's getting ready to die. And he lists every one of the tribes, every one of the sons, and he gives them like a unique blessing, right? And in this blessing, and as we said before, when we spoke about the blessing, um, the blessing is like a combination blessing prophecy, okay? So he's giving them a blessing. And at the same time, it's like the Holy Spirit through him is declaring something about this tribe, about this son and their his descendants, about what is to be expected in the future, okay? We spoke about this last time uh, when we spoke about how Jacob blessed um, the younger son of Joseph with his right hand and the, the older son with his left hand, which would have been the reverse, right? The younger son, Ephraim, he was the one who was blessed with Jacob's right hand, like giving the, the greater blessing. And that's because um, Jacob said that Ephraim would be like a mighty nation. And we know that later on, when we look at the verses uh, later on, the, the, the people of Ephraim would outnumber the people of Manasseh, um, and, and they, would be, uh, they would be like a mightier tribe than the tribe of Manasseh. So it was a prophecy, something that is going to happen later on, many generations from now, hasn't happened yet. And so here also, we're going to try to look at the meanings of, these of the blessings that Jacob is going to give to his sons uh, and try to understand what they mean. And sometimes they're difficult to understand and they're obscure. Um, and I tried to find uh, different quotes from the church fathers and explanations from the church fathers to give um, not, not necessarily the literal meaning of it, but this, also the spiritual meaning of what's like behind the blessing. Um, one thing we will also see is that the church fathers predominantly, or uh, yeah, actually, I think probably all of them, um, when they commented on scripture, they were commenting on the Septuagint version of the scripture, Okay. So um, when, you, when you read the explanation, the explanation is matching a translation that's different than the translation that we have in the New King James. So in some cases, I'm going to explain what is the translation that they're using, right, and how they interpret and understand. The other very important uh, aspect of this chapter is that this marks the end of the era of the patriarchs, right? The era of the patriarchs started with Abraham, who was the first one that was called by God to lead the people and essentially to form the people of God from among all of the people of the world. 
God called Abraham, and then that covenant was passed down to his son Isaac, and that covenant was passed down to his son Jacob, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the patriarchs. Okay, they're the ones that essentially led the people of God from the very beginning up until this point. After the end of Genesis, there's going to be a period where there's no documentation of exactly what happened, but the Israelites, they were living in Egypt, and as time passed and as new kings came to be that were not kind uh, to the Hebrews as, as this Pharaoh is, they became slaves and they lived for about 400 years as slaves growing as a nation, but inside, inside Egypt. And so the next leader that we're going to read about of the Egyptians, or sorry, of the Israelites is who? Moses, right? So that will happen in the book of Exodus. Okay, we're, we're not going to study Exodus right away, but um, that will happen in the book of Exodus. So this is the end of the era of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the ones whom God made the covenant. Um, this is showing like the last step uh, to preserve the people, to make them into a mighty nation, which is what? To bring them into Egypt, to save them from the famine, to give them a place where they can grow and thrive under the protection of Egypt, as opposed to being like a nomadic nation uh, that is just kind of wandering and, and, and living kind of out on their own. Now they are like, like essentially been adopted, so to speak, by the Egyptians, and that's going to greatly help them to grow um, and expand dramatically. Okay. So what about the blessing? So it says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Okay, so through the spirit of prophecy, Jacob is now going to bless um, each of his sons. Um, and here he's considering each son, not just as an individual person, right, but as a tribe, right, as a tribe um, per the covenant that God had made with him and his father. So as he's giving the blessing, the blessing is not like directed toward one man, right? The blessing is directed toward an entire tribe and ultimately the nation of Israel, because these 12 tribes are the ones that make up the nation of Israel, okay? Um, again, you know, Jacob is not, is, is dying now without seeing the fruition of the promise that God had made. But when we revisit, you know, the Israelites again in, in the book of Exodus, this is really when we see the, the, the promise that God had made with Abraham is now actually taking shape. Like now the people are, are, are a mighty people and they're able, that God leads them out of Egypt and they are a mighty nation. But right now, again, as his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, um, Jacob is dying now without seeing the, the covenant of God being uh, realized yet. Okay, it is, it is going to happen after his time. So he's going to go through now each of the sons. He's starting with the oldest, right? And then he goes down to the youngest. The oldest is Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Okay, so Reuben, even though he was the firstborn, and he is the one who represents strength and might because he is like the firstborn, right? The firstborn son. Um, and he should have had the birthright, right? Which is, we said before that, um, the tradition was is that the, the firstborn son who receives the birthright gets double the inheritance of all of the other sons. Um, but he forsook this inheritance because of 
this is what it says, you had defiled my bed. This is the um, this is when he slept with the concubine of Jacob. Uh, and so he was disqualified from having this birthright, and instead it fell to Joseph. We can actually read about this in First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Okay, so from now on, whenever the kind of the, the genealogy is considered, right, even though Reuben was technically the firstborn, but it's like considering that Joseph is the firstborn, okay, the firstborn son. And, 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 and like we said before, this is why uh, each of the sons of Joseph got their own tribe, the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim, okay? And sometimes we refer to them as half-tribes um, because they both come from Joseph, but among the 12, each of them had a tribe, okay? Um, this idea uh, of Reuben forsaking uh, his birthright through sin, okay? It's uh, similar to uh, conversation that Christ has with the Pharisees, okay? When Christ is rebuking the Pharisees and he tells them, don't be so comfortable with the idea that you have Abraham as a father. Actually, I'll read it for you. This is in Matthew 3, 9. It says, do not think and to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, okay? What was the context that, that Christ was speaking to the Pharisees to, to, to say that? Does anyone know? So in this verse where Christ is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What was the context of that conversation? Why did Christ say that to the Pharisees? And how does that kind of apply to this idea of Reuben here? Very good, right? So the Pharisees believed that by virtue of them being the descendants of Abraham, then they could never be rejected by God. And then essentially at the end, everything is going to be for them. They are the chosen people. And they felt like very self-confident in that. And they, they were very prideful in that. And, and that's how they could justify the fact that they are an authority that could justify the fact that their word is like, it's almost like their word is the same as the word of God, okay? And so Christ, when he rebukes the Pharisees, he's saying, don't be so comfortable. And, and, and when, I, when I'm coming to tell, to tell you, you know, that you are rejected, don't, don't be so comfortable and say, well, we have Abraham as our father. Because we are of the biological bloodline of Abraham, then that means that we are safe. That means that God is not going to reject us. That means that, you know, everything is fine. Christ is saying, don't be so don't be so quick to say that. And then he goes on to say what? God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, meaning what you are considering to be unchangeable, which is the idea that only the Jewish, you know, the ethnic Jewish people are the people of God. God is now actually going to do a new thing. He's going to say all of the Gentiles, anyone who accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior, he is uh, the child of Abraham, right? So in the New Testament, right, the new Jerusalem, or the new Israel, is the church, right? The new Israel is the church. So even though we are not Jewish, right, but we are the children of God by virtue of what Christ did on the cross for us and accepted us to be children through baptism, okay? So 
So how is that related to what we just read about Reuben? Very good, right? By virtue of the law, Reuben is the firstborn because he is physically was the first son of Jacob. So according to the law, he is the one who should receive the birthright. He is the one who receives the inheritance, right? But because of his sin, Jacob and God is saying, no, I'm taking this away from you, right? Because of, because of your sin, I'm taking it away from you and I'm giving it to another, right? So in that sense, you're exactly right. Reuben represents the, the, the Jews and Joseph represents the Christians, right? Because the, the, the status of child of God, the status of the people of God was taken away from the Jews because they rejected God and given to the Christians, given to the believers, regardless of what their ethnicity is. Um, St. Ambrose, he speaks about this point. He says what? He says, he sees the future passion of the Lord under persecution from the Jews and execrates the boundless audacity of that firstborn people. So the firstborn people, the first people to be the people of God were the Jews. And they had this boundless audacity in the sense that they were very filled with pride, believing that because we have been chosen by God, just like what the Pharisees were saying, because Abraham is our father, that means that no one, we're untouchable. Nobody can mess with us, okay? For Israel itself was called the firstborn and said to be stiff-necked, and, uh, and, and of it, Moses said, you are a stiff-necked people, meaning God rebuked the firstborn people. God rebuked the Jewish people, and he took away from them this birthright, and he gave it to the church. Okay? And this is exactly what we see here in Reuben, right? God took away his birthright from being the firstborn and gave it to another. Okay, verse 5. Simon and Levi... Our brothers, instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Okay. What does this mean? When it says, for they slew a man, who is he talking about that they slew? Yes, so expand. Yeah, so as um, the it says what? The, the daughter, the one daughter that's mentioned of Abraham, of uh, Jacob, okay, her name was Dina. And when um, they came to settle, right, in the land of Canaan, after Jacob returned from serving his uncle Laban, okay, they came back and they dwelt in, in, in the land again in Canaan, and so it said what about Dina, Dina, his daughter, it said she went out to see the daughters of the land, so she went out on like a little tour, <laughs> and going around to see the people, so some of the people that she went to visit with were the people of Shechem, okay, the people of Shechem, and uh, Shechem, whose father's name was Hamor, Shechem, he became enamored with her and he raped her and he wanted to marry her, okay? So he went to 
Jacob and and, the, and his and, and his sons, and he said, uh, "Let's let's let's be united as one people, right? Let's be united as one people. We will marry in, into yours, and you will marry into ours, and we will become one people." So Jacob like wanted to have peace, okay, between them, but the brothers, specifically Simeon and Levi, they um, they despised what Shechem had done. So they pretended as though that they were going to make peace. And they told them, um, the only condition that we, that we have, if you want to be one people with us and you want to marry our, our, our sister, Dina, is that you have to be circumcised. Why? why? Why is that? Why would they have to be circumcised? Become like the Jewish, right? Because God said to Abraham, the covenant, the sign of the covenant for them to be the people of God was circumcision. So here, you know, and, and, and you can see here, like, the, you know, the, the, the Shechemites, they're taking all this very ignorantly and very lightly, right? It's like, what do I want? I want to marry this girl. What do I got to do to marry this girl? Oh, circumcision? Okay. You know, like, like, like I'm, not even, I'm not even thinking about the spiritual reality of what's happening. I'm not even thinking anything about because we're going to worship God, because we want to be the people of God, because we should obey God, because who is God? And all. Like, none of the realities of the faith mattered. All that mattered is, I want to marry this girl. Okay? And, and, and sadly, this happens even today in the church, right? Sometimes people, they want to become Orthodox. Why do you want to become Orthodox? I just, I want to marry this person. Do you not understand anything about what your what the faith is, what's being asked of you, what how God will judge now that you are in the church and baptized in the church and, and knowing the truth that like that you are choosing to like know this but not to live by it? And I, it doesn't none of that matters, right? All that matters is I want something. So what I have to do to do it to get it, this is what I have to do, I'll do it. But but they would otherwise despise, you know, what it is. They're not thinking about the mystery of being the people of God, they're just thinking of their carnal pleasure, right? They're just thinking one thing that I want and I'll do anything. I don't, I'll, it's like, it's like I'm going to use the system. I'm going to gain the system in order to get what I want. And that's it. Right. And so that's what happened. Okay. But like I said, it was all a trick, right? Simeon and Levi, they were not interested in being united together. They weren't interested in them, like joining them or they were doing this as a, as, as a tactic. So that what it says in Genesis 34, 25, now it came to pass on the third day, this is the third day of their circumcision, when they were in pain, that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all of the males. So they used this as an opportunity to destroy them, right? And that's what they did, okay? Um, at the time, Jacob didn't know that this is, that this is what they had planned. At the time, Jacob uh, rebuked them. He said, what? Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. Because now, even he is the, the small family, and all these people around him now know what he has done, his family has done, like in treachery and deception. And now he's going to be a target. Because people are going to come and want to kill him for what it is that he had done. Okay? Say Ambrose... He says what? From the tribe of Simeon come the scribes, from that of Levi, the chief priests, who brought their wickedness to completion and filled up the entire measure of their father's unholiness and the passion of the Lord. They took counsel against the Lord Jesus to kill him, even as Isaiah says, alas for their souls, 
because they have counseled an evil counsel against themselves, saying, let us bind the just one, for he is profitless to us. Okay. So, so here, St. Ambrose is saying, who are the ones who crucified the Lord? It was the scribes and the Pharisees. And which tribe did the scribes and the Pharisees come from? They came from Simeon and Levi. Okay. So, in a, in a spiritual sense, um, there, there is like this, this, this prophecy about what they will become, okay, in the future. But there is also uh, like a, a short-term realization and fulfillment of this prophecy as well, in addition to that. So we know that Levi, what land did Levi have? Right, so it says what, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Okay, this is, the, the, this is what he's saying about them. So what land did Levi have? Levi? Well, Levi didn't have any land, right? What did Levi have? They had the ability to be priests, right? Because God told them that their, their inheritance was, was the Lord himself, because they were the priests of the Lord. But what land did they have? Right, they were scattered everywhere. Actually, they had 48 cities. So those 48 cities of the Levites that were scattered around all of Israel, because the Levites... Um, they couldn't be all concentrated in one area because they were needed to be priests for all of the people, right? So they didn't have one region, which is the area of Levi, the region of Levi, okay? So they were scattered in that sense everywhere. Also, the territory of Simeon, okay? What about the territory of Simeon? In Joshua 19.1, it says what? The second lot came out for Simeon. This is where... Uh, in Joshua is where after the, the, the people enter into the promised land, and now they are like conquering the people living there, and they are dividing up the land according to, to what God has said of who gets what. So the second law came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families, and their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. What does that mean? Yes. So it's like if you, I don't have the map, but if you have it on the map, you have the, the, the region of Judah. And then within the region of Judah, there's like a little circular area, which is Simeon. So Simeon doesn't have any borders or coasts or anything other than they are completely 100% surrounded by the tribe of Judah, right? So again, they are divided. They, they're like divided and separated. They didn't have a very good plot, right? Because it, it, was, it, was, it was divided up in that way. Okay, so, so far we've done Reuben, Simeon, Levi. That's three. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Okay, Judah is one of the very special tribes. Why is Judah so special? Yeah, he's going to get actual blessing. And what is what is unique about the tribe of Judah? Christ comes from the tribe of Judah, right? So Judah is going to have a lot of blessing, okay? Because this is the, the tribe through whom the Messiah is going to come. So here when he says, Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. The, the name Judah literally means praise, okay? That is the name. That is what Judah means. Um, all the others are to praise Judah because he is to be given the one of greater honor. 
Also, we know what else that's unique about Judah. Yes, so later when Israel is divided into two uh, separate nations, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom, there's two tribes. One of them is Judah and the other is Benjamin, and all the other ten tribes are in the north. So, so what is the, the, the tribe of Judah is actually the tribe where all the kings came from, right? All the kings came from the tribe of Judah, okay? Those tribes that are in the south, uh, the, the, the kingdom that's in the south, all the kings are from the tribe of Judah. King David, King Solomon, you know, all of these famous kings, all of them from the tribe of Judah. Okay. Um, as far as the name Judah, like we said, it means praise. And the reason it means that is because when Judah was born to Leah, Leah was Jacob's first wife. It says in Genesis 29, 35, it says, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Right. So she called his name out of a praise that she is praising God for the fact that he gave her the son. OK, this son. Um, also, after the death of Joshua, remember, so like we said, the next leader of the people was Moses. OK, and then when Moses dies, who becomes the leader after that? Joshua. After Joshua dies, who becomes the leader? So it is the judges um, in actually the first two verses of the book of Judges. Okay, this is what it says. After the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Right. So Judah, the tribe of Judah became like a tribe of leadership, even from before the kingdom even from the institution of the kingdom and the idea that there were kings in Israel. From the very beginning, God selected Judah to be like a leader, one to whom the others will bow, right? Um, your father's children shall bow down before you because they are the tribe of kings. They're the tribe of leaders, and ultimately they are the tribe of the Messiah, Christ. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Okay. Um, a whelp is like a young lion. Okay, like a like a young lion is a whelp. So it's it's reflecting the idea that it's a powerful lion. He is powerful and 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 he has conquered his enemies. Who can rouse him? Who can go up against him? Everyone. You know, we say like the, the lion is the king of the jungle, right? Like the lion is the most powerful. So because he is represented by the lion, okay, then, then he is more powerful than conquer his enemy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Okay, again, what does the scepter represent? What is the scepter? Power, kingship, right? The, the king is holding the scepter, right? It's like a sign of royalty. So, so the scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning the kings will come from Judah. And ultimately, Christ, who is the king, 
right? The king of kings. He also is coming from the tribe of Judah. Shiloh is, um, is like means the Messiah. So essentially the coming of the Messiah. So he's saying, uh, the scepter shall not depart, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes. Meaning all of the leaders, right, of, of, uh, of Israel are going to be coming from this tribe of Judah up until the coming of the Messiah himself. Okay. Um, when you read about uh, the, the, the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, it says, and in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, right? A root of Jesse, why? Because Jesse is the father of King David. The Messiah is like, uh, like one of the, the descendants of the line of King David. So the one who shall be a, be a root of Jesse is the Messiah, who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. So he has this position of leadership and king and kingship, okay? All the people will be in obedience to him, right? Uh, the earthly kings and the spiritual king who is Christ, the king of kings, all coming from the tribe of Judah. Goes on, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of graves. Like a very, like very powerful imagery, again, related to the Messiah, okay? Christ said about himself that he is a vine. In John 15, verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Okay? Also, regarding the donkey, okay, this is what St. Ambrose says about this idea of binding the donkey. He says, this explains the mystery that the Lord Jesus in the gospel ordered a donkey's colt to be loosed and himself sat upon it. This is on what? What day? On Sunday. On Sunday. Thus, like one that was bound to a vine, he could not find rest in the everlasting goodness of the saints. Okay, so he's saying what? This is a prophecy that Christ, the Messiah, he is the true vine, and that his entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, right? Because the vine is riding on the colt, right? He is the vine riding on the colt. And he washed his garments in wine and his blood and his clothes in the blood of grapes. It's a very clear imagery to the crucifixion, right? And that he is, he would, he is to be crucified for the sins of the people. Um, so again, when you, when you think about prophecy, and this is why it's important to understand and to read prophecy in the Old Testament. When you realize that this was written thousands of years before the coming of Christ, okay? Thousands of years. So, so you can't you can't look at this and, and 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 say that this is just a coincidence, right? Like this is a specific prophecy about when Shiloh comes, okay, who is Christ. I'm speaking about a man who is to come from the tribe of Judah, okay, who who is seen as the as the Messiah, who's seen as the Savior, and this is what is going to happen to him. Okay. Yeah. It's the same because the Jews, the Jews didn't have an understanding of eternal life, right? There wasn't there wasn't an understanding of what eternal life is. So any type of reward that um, God would give 
it would be seen as like the greatest reward God could give was to extend your human life or to bless your human life, right, in some way. So this is what, in the minds of the Jews, the idea of eternal life was something um, difficult to grasp and the idea of resurrection, right, that they didn't understand. So it's only later on that when it became clear, the idea of what exactly is this eternal life, what is this um, um, this, this, this life after this one that we should be expecting, that then the idea of the spiritual understanding of these prophecies as, as the church, as we are the church looking at these now, that it makes sense, right? Because, because at the time, they didn't understand what, what this, this meant. They thought that this was going to be a military leader to free them from their enemies and restore the glory that King David had again. There wasn't a clear understanding of what was going to happen. And, and keep in mind as well that everyone who died in the Old Testament went to Hades, right? So there wasn't that the, the eternal life, the joy of the eternal life and all of that hadn't been yet realized, right? That they, you know, now when we, when we say like, when we look to death, we see it as a, something joyful, like a reuniting with the Lord, like an entering into paradise, like a, a being in the presence of God for eternity. But at the time there, that's not what they experienced. That's not what they, how they thought of death. Okay, so the greatest type of reward they could give, God would give, would be like prolonging someone's life, blessing their life, giving them many children. Those kinds of things that are always like the reward that God is showering upon, like the righteous people in the Old Testament. Um, because the concept of paradise and eternal life with God and all that was not clear in their mind to come. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So I found uh, an explanation of this to St. Hippolytus. Okay, St. Hippolytus, he speaks about this verse. He says, eyes, then, the prophets have been the eyes of Christ. So, so he's saying, the word eyes are referring to the those who are like in a in a spiritual sense able to see the prophet the, to see the coming of Christ in the future, which are the prophets. It's like the prophets, when they declare prophecy, it's like they they are with their spiritual eyes seeing the future, the coming of the Messiah, and they are declaring it to us now, right in the past. Okay, so eyes then the prophets have been the eyes of Christ when they rejoiced in the power of the spirit and announced in advance the sufferings which had to rush upon him. Because remember that we just read the prophecy of his, his crucifixion, right? His riding on the donkey and his crucifixion. So uh, St. Hippolytus is saying that this is referring to these prophets who are making these prophecies, okay? Um, which were useful for the generations after him to understand that every person can be saved. Through the words, his teeth are whiter than milk, he signified either, so he's saying that the idea of the teeth being whiter than milk or can mean one of two things. Either it signifies um, that uh, the apostles who are sanctified by the word himself and became like pure, okay, like white, like the milk is white, um, uh, or the apostles have provided us with a spiritual and heavenly nourishment, which is like uh, to feed us, right? So he's saying the eyes represent the prophecies, the prophets that are making the prophecies, and he's saying the teeth are represent um, the apostles who um, have been sanctified by the word of God, by the word himself, or the apostles declaring to us 
the pure milk of the word, as St. Paul refers to the word of God as the pure milk of the word, um, like the spiritual nourishment from the word of God. Okay. Okay, so we've done what? Four, four so far, right? Zebulun is the fifth one. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Okay. If you read in Joshua 19, so again, in the book of Joshua is where all of the tribes kind of like get their delineated borders, right? So there's this, this passage in Joshua 19, verses 10 through 16, which is like a paragraph long description of the exact boundaries of the tribe of Zebulun. Okay, um, but uh, essentially its borders are by the sea. Okay, so this is saying its borders here shall, be, shall become a haven for ships, its borders are by the sea. What does St. Hippolytus say about this? He says, through Zebulun, he has metaphorically foretold the pagan nations who live now in the world along the coast and are tormented by the storm of temptations as if they were in the sea. Therefore, they move and look for refuge in harbors that is in the churches. So he's saying this tribe of Zebulun represents metaphorically the, the pagans, right? That do not believe in God, okay? Um, who, who are like, uh, and the sea, like the torment of the sea, like the, the tumultuousness of the sea represents like the temptations of the world. And these people who are like affected and, and, and by the temptations of the world, they're like attracted to the world, attached to the world, living in sin in the world, they are um, by the sea because for that reason. And so they should be what? Looking for refuge in harbors. They should be looking for a place where they can take a refuge from the, the sea and the storms of the sea. What is the, what is the refuge? What is the harbor? It is the church that they should be coming to seek refuge from them. Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves, okay? Issachar, he represents Christ, okay? And the, the, the name Issachar means reward. So Christ is our reward because we receive the reward of Christ as, like a, a, as a reward of our faith. Like we believe in him and we receive Christ and receive the benefits of Christ, okay? St. Hippolytus speaks about him, him also, Issachar. He says what? He has found his rest in the inheritance of the prophets. Okay, in order to accomplish what had what they had foretold on the mountain, Moses and Elijah were seen while they talked to him by standing one at his right and the other at his left in order to demonstrate that the Savior rested between them. So he's saying that this idea, Issachar represents Christ. He is between two burdens. Who are the two burdens? What did St. Hippolytus say? Who are the two burdens? Moses and Elijah, right? Moses and Elijah. This happened when? The transfiguration miracle. Okay, so in the transfiguration miracle, Christ was on the mountain. He transfigured. He became to, to like shine with glorious light and appeared was Moses and Elijah next to him. So here, St. Hippolytus is saying is that this is a prophecy of the transfiguration. Okay, just as Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ in between, so here it's saying Issachar lying down between the two burdens. Okay, so the two burdens represent uh, that. Okay. Um, St. Ambrose, he also says, 
He bowed his shoulder to labor, bowed himself to the cross to carry our sins. So when we call him here as, a, as like a donkey, in the idea that he was doing a work, he was doing like a work of labor, a burden that was placed on him. What was that burden? It was the burden of salvation. It was the burden of the cross. It was the burden of the sins that the Lord Christ carried for us in his crucifixion. Okay, so that's that's here. It's like saying Issachar, which represents Christ, is, is, is carrying this burden, just as Christ is carrying the burden of sin for us. And he is transfiguring, manifesting in his glory between Moses and Elijah. Yes. It's a prophecy. So, well, the, the blessing and the prophecy are, are like intertwined, right? Yeah. So, so when I when I say, you know, that you are going to grow and be very successful, right? Part of that is the prophecy about what is going to happen. And part of it is the blessing that is the blessing of God that is granting you the success. See? Um, verse 15, this next verse, this is one of those verses that has a different translation uh, 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 in, in the Septuagint. Okay? So the, the commentary that I found was related to the, the translation that was a little different than this. So I'm going to read it to you as, as it says here. Um, and then I'm going to read to you the Septuagint version. So here it says, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Okay. The Septuagint, remember here we're talking about Christ. Right? This is imagery of Christ. So rest was good. And the idea that he, he rested, he rested after his work of salvation, he rested. Okay. And, and how he is... Um, He's resting in his glory, okay? And that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear the burden, right? So the burden we said was the burden of sin on the cross, okay? So that kind of fits with verse 14. The last part that says, and became a band of slaves, okay? In the, in the Septuagint version, it says, and became a husbandsman. A husbandman is a farmer, okay? So, so here the idea meaning what? that Christ is the one who sowed the word of God in the soul of each person. Like he's sowing the work of salvation in us, right? You can also think about it um, like, like someone who is using like a beast of burden for, uh, to, to sow the land, right? It's a beast of burden. It's the idea that in order to sow in the believer, the word of God, right? In order to sow salvation, it is a, it is a work. And Christ did a work, the work of salvation for us. So this last part, and became a band of slaves, uh, this is translated and became a husbandman or a farmer, which is that is how the fathers interpret that verse. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Okay. The name Dan means, uh, here, when it says Dan shall judge the people, the name Dan means judge. When Dan was born, okay, Rachel is his mother. Okay, so Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. 
it's a dam. Oh, yes, right. Yes, this is this is saying Rachel as the other wife. God has judged my case and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name there. But, but no, that's that's. From the concubine. Yes, I see. Yes, you're right. Yes, from the concubine, not from Leah. Yeah, because this is this is the time where she gave her concubine to Jacob because she was in competition with Leah. Right. Um, so God has judged my case. So this is why she called him Dan. Okay. It's like God is like giving her like justice in front of her, you know, competing wife. Um, but what does the rest of this mean? Okay, so St. Ambrose, he says, Samson was from the tribe of Dan, and he judged for 20 years, because some people say that this is uh, like, a, like a prophecy about Samson, okay? Um, but the prophecy does not refer to him, but the Antichrist, a cruel judge and savage tyrant who will come from the tribe of Dan and will judge the people. This is why there are a lot of people that believe that the Antichrist, when he comes, he will be Jewish, and he will come from the tribe of Dan. Okay, and one of the reasons why is this verse here in verse 17. Um, it says here, uh, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Okay, um, so um, I tried to find like other information about like evidence of. Uh, why some people would believe that the Antichrist would, would come from the tribe of Dan, because even in the Coptic Church, some say this. Um, but beyond this verse, I couldn't really find anything very concrete uh, that supported it in addition to this. So this is, I think, one of the main verses to support that idea that the Antichrist would come from this tribe. What was this? So I, I think what well, this is, this is like him declaring um, like our need for salvation from this, from the, from the viper by the path and the, that bicycle horse's heels. Like we are, we are asking God to save us from this prophecy, essentially. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Okay, St. Ambrose, he speaks about this as well. So he says, the trial is the cunning assembly of scribes and priests who tried the Lord Jesus about Caesar's tribute and John's baptism. As scripture teaches, in his holiness, Jesus turned the trial back upon them at their heels that is replying immediately without any deliberation so that he might rather corner those trying him. Okay, so here St. Ambrose is saying that Gad also is representing the Lord right, who is under trial, right? Like there is a troop that he is trampling upon him, like he's trying to attack the Lord, like in, in his trial, but ultimately he shall triumph, right? Christ endured many sufferings, right? He even endured death, but even that ultimate defeat, which is death, like did not defeat him. Like he was victorious over it through his resurrection, okay? So also it could refer to the idea of like, a, like, a, like the believer who is struggling spiritually in their life, that in the end, even though they are struggling and even though there are attacks upon him and spiritual warfare and all those things, but in the end, he shall triumph through the grace of God. Okay, so this is what um, like St. Ambrose says about 
Gad. Notice that um, a lot of these different uh, tribes, they, they represent Christ in some way, right? Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall read, yield royal dainties. Okay? What is a dainty? It's like a, like a luxury, right? Like something that's like, like luxurious, okay? Uh, like a luxurious food, for instance. What does St. Hippolytus say about Asher? It says, here the prophet speaks obscurely, either about the apostles who had the duty to provide and distribute the bread of life, right? So he's saying in, in that case, it could mean that Asher represents the apostles who are like teaching the people about salvation or about the savior himself. Since he foretells and let us know the bread descending from heaven, which is food and drink for the saints. In fact, Asher is interpreted as richness, as he alone was so rich that he might satiate all those who came to him. And Christ also testified about himself by saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But whoever eats of my bread will never see uh, eternal death. Right? So it's like the... Saying, like, again, Asher represents the Lord Christ, who is the bread of life, who is nourishing and feeding spiritually all of the people, and he shall be, like, abundance. Like, you give, like, in abundance, and, like, like in, 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 like, the luxurious, like, the wonderful bread, right? The eternal bread, the bread that has no end to feed his people. So another prophecy about Christ. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Okay? This is another example where the, the verse is a little different in the Septuagint. Um, in the Septuagint, it says that Naphtali is a spreading vine. It's a spreading vine. Instead of saying the deer let loose things, it's a spreading vine. So St. Hippolytus says what well, a spreading vine branch signifies the people that are called to freedom through faith so that all may bring fruits to God. Okay, so the, the vine is in the one who is able to bear fruit. We bear fruit through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, through the fruit of the Spirit, okay? So the, the spreading vine branch represents the people that are, like, liberated from sin, right? Called to freedom through faith, so that all may bring fruit to God, right? It is like the, like, like almost like a symbol of the church, where the church is, like, abounding in this vine, this fruit, right? Because we said, what, that he is the vine and we are the branches. So we are, like, spreading our branches as a part of the vine, bearing fruit, right, for the, for the Lord. In fact, the Savior was the spiritual vine. Its branches and trunks are the saints who believe in him. Its bunches of grapes are the martyrs. The trunks of wood, which are bound to vines, indicate the passion. The grape pickers are the angels. The baskets where the fruits of the vine are gathered are the apostles. The wine press is the church. The wine is the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the words spreading vine branch signify those who have been freed from the chains of death, right? So it's a symbol of the church, right? He is, it's like the church that is flourishing, that is bearing fruit for the Lord Christ. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by well. His branches run over the wall. St. Ephraim the Syrian. He speaks about this. He says, just as Jacob depended on Joseph instead of Reuben, the firstborn, right? Remember we said Reuben was uh, lost his status as being the firstborn, right? And instead it fell on Joseph. So just as Jacob depended on Joseph instead of Reuben, the firstborn, so also instead of Adam, 
the firstborn and rebellious one, the world had one son of old age in the latter days of the world, so that the whole world might stand and lean on him as if on a pillar. Okay, so he's, so he's speaking about how like the original firstborn, if you want to say, which is Adam, which is the one who was literally the firstborn, but he lost salvation, right? So, so the second son, right, the, the, the new firstborn son, right, who is to come is the Lord Christ who takes the place of Adam so, so that while death entered into the world through Adam, but the uh, life and salvation entered for the world through the Lord Christ. Um, so that the whole world might stand and lean on him as if on a pillar. Rise up, O spring, O building supported by brothers and sons. Through the power of our Lord, the world is supported on the prophets and on the apostles. Joseph became a wall of plenty to his brothers in the time of famine, and our Lord became the wall of knowledge to the world in the time of error. So just as Joseph fed the world, brought salvation to the world through him, feeding it, he was fruitful, right? He, was, he stored the food, and then he gave the food to the people to keep them from starving, right? His branches run over like it is full of abundance, okay? Um, the Lord Christ also, because Joseph is a symbol of the Lord Christ, he brings us salvation and saves us from the, the spiritual famine, right? From death, from separation from God, okay? So this is like, again, a prophecy about the relationship between what Joseph has done and what the Lord Christ has done. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So again, this is speaking both about Joseph and Christ. Both experienced suffering, like here where it says the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him, right? But his bow remained in strength, right? So, so just as the brothers of Joseph tried to persecute, to kill, to sell into slavery Joseph, and he suffered as a result. So also Christ suffered, but the end of both was the salvation. In the end, Joseph became the one to save the people from the famine, and the Lord Christ, through his sufferings, he died, shed his blood for our, our sins, and, and, and offered us his salvation. Here, here God is speaking about all of the blessings, right, that, that Joseph will receive. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breast and of the womb, the blessing of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So here Jacob is like showering Joseph with all of these blessings upon him, right? And on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. He was not with his brothers. He lived apart from them, grew up separately from them. And in the end, like he was the one who was able to save the others. This is the last son, Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey. and At night, he shall divide the spoil. The tribe of Benjamin was a very uh, ferocious uh, tribe and actually fought against the other tribes. And an incident that happened in Judges 19 and 20, there actually became a civil war um, in Israel where all the other tribes were attacking Benjamin for, for what they had done, right? So here it's saying Benjamin is a savage, like ravenous wolf, okay? Um, and, and, and kind of cruel in that sense. Um, also, this can be uh, St. Ephraim of Syrian. 
uh, in a spiritual sense, uh, directs this toward Paul the Apostle, because Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He says, what Paul, who was a wolf to the wolves, and snatched all souls away from the evil one, and in the evening he will die, divide what he seizes, that is, at the end of the world, he will also rest with a reward greater than his labor. So here he's saying about uh, St. Paul that it's like he is a ravenous wolf in a good sense, in the sense that he is like stealing away from the evil one, stealing away from Satan, the souls of those who are in his control, because he is teaching them the word of God, preaching to them and bringing them salvation. Right. So that's another interpretation of that. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed them, each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. Do you remember what this field is? Field in, from Ephraim the Hittite, remember? This is back in Genesis 23. <clears throat> in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought from, with the field of uh, uh, bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession of a burial place. So he had bought this land, okay? And part of this land that he bought from this man, Ephron the Hittite, it had this cave, this cave of Machpelah. And this is where all of the ancestors of Jacob had been buried. Abraham, uh, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, they were all buried in the same cave. Okay. So he's saying, I also. In verse 30, that's the where we left off. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebecca, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up onto the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So um, that's the end of the blessing of the sons. Uh, and, and Jacob uh, died. Next week, God willing, we're going to just read the last chapter, chapter 50, which concludes um, our study of the book of Genesis. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we conclude? Um, yes, they were, but, but I mean, I would say it's more than the five, right? Because some of them were not like very specific or very, uh, like detailed prophecies, like the one about Asher, for instance, right? It's just a representation of the Christ being the bread of life, right? So that's good. I mean, it, it's not a, it's not like a specific uh, thing saying what's going to happen to the people of the tribe of Asher necessarily. At least that's not the interpretation that I found from like the church fathers, um, some of them are definitely more clear, like the tribe of Judah, for instance, is probably the most clear out of all of them. Uh, but um, but no, I, I would say that only a couple of them had like a negative, like Simeon and Levi. Even with Simeon and Levi, right, that had like a, ne a negative tone that their, their, their land would be divided and all of that. Even there, like Levi, they received the gift of being the priests. So it, maybe it also says something about how like, 
like God is always wants to have mercy and to give us good things, even when we deserve bad things and even when we do wrong. Um, God still wants to bless us and give us something good. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you, O Lord, for every opportunity you give us to approach you, to learn more about you, and to confess and repent of our sins. Teach us your ways, O God, and grant us, O Lord, wisdom and guidance of how to live in this world in a, in a successful way, in a victorious way, in a way that we are not conquered or defeated by the enemy. Help us to see, O God, your work in the history of all of mankind, working and blessing and protecting and saving and bringing us, O Lord, to yourself. Teach us, O God, to be thankful for every gift you give and to be obedient, O Lord, to your word and to seek your holy kingdom at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.